0: is quite unlike any of the other three. Although each of the others has a distinctive approach, they all follow the same timeline, the same narrative, the same story. And John's is often different. Sometimes it's just the chronology, the order things come in. Sometimes we get scenes that occur nowhere else. And he's often less concerned with telling a story. John is concerned with a deeper meaning. He uses imagery, symbolism. This often means that we can take just one or two verses of John's gospel and make a whole Bible study or even a sermon series out of them. So, what are John's themes? What is it, this meaning, that he's so concerned we get our heads round? I want to concentrate on just two things here. And the first one is rather obvious. So if we can get the next slide up. Who is Jesus? This, I think, is the verse that Chris had put on the front of our sermon series booklet. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I'd like to take you back in thinking about these words to two previous sermons. Firstly, last week, Chris told us about John the Baptist's description of Jesus as the Lamb of God and talked about the significance of the Lamb in terms of sacrifice and in terms of sacrifice in someone's place, thinking about Abraham and Isaac. So when John the Baptist described Jesus as the Lamb of God, he already knew The full significance. He knew what was happening there. And interestingly, there is an unusual word in this chapter. We've just got it translated as looked at or saw. But actually, it means to look at with discernment. And it happens just twice here. Once when John the Baptist looks at Jesus looks at him with discernment and says, behold, the Lamb of God. And again later, when Jesus looks at Simon Peter and says, you are Simon, but from here on, you will be Peter. So there's the first part. The Lamb of God. Some of you will remember that about a year ago, I preached a sermon about breaking Chris's teapots. I compared my sinfulness to breaking a teapot. I break Chris's favourite teapot. This is the scenario. I'm filled with remorse. I go and beg her forgiveness, and she gives me it. There's one half of our forgiveness for our sinfulness. But unfortunately, the teapot is still shattered in shards all over the kitchen floor. There is another part needed. I need to go and find her and buy her another teapot, as good a teapot as I can possibly find. That's all very well. But when I sin, I mar God's image in me. I can't buy one of those. There is nothing I could possibly get that would pay to replace God's image in me. I don't have anything precious enough. But I have a very wealthy benefactor. The one thing that is worth enough to pay the price of my sin, the life of Christ, the Lamb of God. Christ died to pay that compensation for my sin. And because Christ is God, that sacrifice is sufficient, not just for my sin, but for all our sin, and for the sin of everybody who has lived and will live. But if Christ is not God, that will not work. If Christ is not God, The lamb is not of sufficient value. So John's great theme here in revealing Christ is that Christ is the Son of God. He is God who came to earth, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. So it is very important for John to show us Christ as the Son of God in his glory. And that is a recurring theme that you will find again and again as you read through John's Gospel. So there's the first of the themes. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, through whom we have life in all its fullness. The second, how are we doing? Yes, let's have another one. Signs. John is a gospel of signs. He describes all the miracles that he describes there as signs. Have we got a, a photo there, Paul? Can you pop it up? Do you know what's happening here? They're taking the, signs down. They're taking the road signs down. This is the beginning of the Second World War. Fearful of a German invasion, we took all the road signs down so they would never be able to find their way from Staplefield to Slapham. <laughs> but signs point to something. And in John's Gospel, the signs are signposts like these that point to Christ. So one of the things we will look for as we go through is things that point towards Christ, just as John did, behold the Lamb of God. And so if we can follow the signs, then we can do as John said, we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only. Now we can go back to calling I've got some little bits and pieces here. But you may have noticed, just before I start on that, you may have noticed, John said, Behold the Lamb of God. Two disciples followed Jesus. And this is followed in the ordinary walking around sense. They went and walked behind him to see where he was going to find out about him. They asked him, They inquired, and he said, come and see. So there's one way of encountering Christ. You're curious, you follow him, you ask, he says, come and see. But Andrew, one of those, was so excited about this, he went and found his brother Simon and led him to Christ. So there's a second way we encounter Christ. Someone leads us. Thirdly, Jesus went, it says to Galilee, he found Philip and said, follow me. There's a third way. Christ finds you and says, follow me. No two ways about it. And Philip then goes and finds Nathaniel. so there's back to the other way. So we can see that there are different ways that we wind up at Christ's door. Others leading us, others pointing the way, us inquiring, Jesus simply calling. So, let's have a look. Andrew heard John the Baptist say, look, the Lamb of God, and followed Jesus. So there he is, he he followed him and said, where do you live? Sounds like a rather strange thing to ask but actually this is a kind of coded message you ask a teacher where he lives and you are asking for instruction so he says come and see and they did they spent the rest of the day and that was enough for Andrew to be convinced that what John the Baptist had said was spot on because when he went to see his brother he said we have found the Christ the Messiah He knew. He believed. He met Jesus. He saw the signs. He believed. And that's a theme that you'll find again in John. In each of these cases, Andrew believes. Nathaniel believes. Philip believes. There'll be many more as we read through the Gospel. So what did they see? What were the signs? One of them here is Christ's instant knowledge of them. He knows Nathaniel's character. Here is a true Israelite, a man in whom there is no guile. I think perhaps Nathaniel must have had a reputation for that because when Jesus said it, he immediately said, how do you know me? And Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree. And you think, well, that's fair enough. You look over there and there's the fig tree. But actually, it also says, Philip went to find Nathaniel. Nathaniel wasn't sitting over there in plain sight. He had to go and find him. So when Jesus said, I saw you under the fig tree, he's saying, I saw you in a place where we couldn't possibly have seen you. You were not in sight. But I saw you. I saw you. Know you. So Nathaniel heard. He saw the signs. And he believed. Jesus calls and we follow. Although several times here someone says we have found the Christ. I don't think there's any sense in which they found Jesus. He found them. Had called them. Simon Peter certainly didn't find Christ. His brother Andrew let him. And Christ looked at him discerningly. He knew this man. He knew what he was about. He knew that this was someone who was central to what was going to happen and renamed him Peter. Peter, the rock, the stone, Petra. Notice that Simon, Peter, didn't do anything. He was led to Christ. Christ looked at him. Christ said, you are Simon, but I shall call you Kephas, Peter. Peter didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. The call of Christ is Christ's work. It is not ours. So the disciples heard, they saw the signs, they believed, and they followed. You hear, you believe, you follow. That is discipleship. Hear, believe, follow. But follow to where? We've got another... Yes. At the beginning of our passage, Andrew and the unnamed disciple, who who might have been John, the Gospeler, but might not, asked Jesus, "Where where do you live? Where do you dwell? Funny word that in the Greek. It means tent, live, dwell, abide abode where do you pitch your tent where do you live and they came to his house andrew goes to find simon peter and brings him back to the place where jesus is dwelling his abode his tent philip invites nathaniel to come to where jesus is staying all this physical movement, all converges on the place where Christ dwells. That is where we are being called. And I want to finish up with a verse that's very easy to overlook. That very last part where Jesus says, I tell you, you will see the heavens open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Ring any bells? Read any Genesis lately? Let's have a quick look, Paul. I'm just going to read this out to you quickly. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you'll spread out to the west and the east and the north and the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring." I'm with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. When Jacob woke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. There is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he'd placed under his head, set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel, Beth-el, house of God. So having said that all of those disciples converged on one place, the place where Christ dwells, the house of God, Jesus then makes this allusion to Jacob's ladder. So when he says, You will see the heavens open and angels going up and down, he said, When you come to me, when you follow me, you are coming to Beth El, the house of God. I've talked before about the Celtic notion of thin places. Places where you are very aware of the presence of God. And I can think of at least two songs we sing fairly regularly, which include the words, heaven touching earth. Those are the thin places. Places where, just as Jacob was, we know we are close to God. And I'm very taken with the notion that Christ's presence constitutes such a place look back at the beginning of chapter one and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory glory that godly quality so christ bestrides if you like he bestrides the boundary between heaven and earth between god and us He is a thin place. When we come to him, we are close to heaven. And we'll remain so. Just as God promised Jacob, I will stay with you always. So Jesus, remember, says, and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. So the call of Jesus is the call to come to the place where he is, straddling earth and heaven. To be where heaven touches earth. Heaven touches earth. A marvel. Something to revel in. Something to live eternally in. And where does it begin? Last one. How does this begin? Just as I said, in that pattern of discipleship. Here, come and see. Believe follow. Hear, believe and follow. That is discipleship. That is what we're called to. Amen.